December can signal a great many things for different people. And I was talking to our producer and editor, Nathan, about what it means to us. Uh, it generally means hiding away and reading and hibernating. Well, that, that's what it means to me, Dan. You don't like the food, the drinks, presents, Christmas films? Nope. Although, hold on, I do like a Muppet Christmas Carol. Christmas is a very busy time for us, Mr Cratchit. People preparing feasts, giving parties, spending the mortgage money on frivolities. If you please, Mr. Scrooge, it's gotten colder. Yeah. Any bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for the fire? We can't do the bookkeeping. Yeah, all of our pens have turned to insicles. Yeah. Our assets are frozen. How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly... Unemployed! I believe you've convinced them once again, Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> exactly that, although I would prefer to keep warm. You don't like nice walks in the winter? Uh, no. Wrapping up warm? Uh, no. There's something really rewarding about being up early. You know, just as it gets light, lacing up your running shoes, layering up, heading out into the crisp air, sound of your feet and the quiet hitting a rhythm and watching your breath pulse in front of you and the sensation of cold fingers, toes and limbs starting to warm up. That all sounds horrific. So you'd be a warm weather runner? Warm, uh, yes. Hot, no. So you'd be surprised to learn that an increasing amount of runners are seeking out events in extreme climates? Uh, surprised, maybe not. Baffled, yes. Let's see if we can help you. And maybe our listeners appreciate the lore of the wild weather as we find out about running day after day in the desert and also racing along a frozen river. Wait, hold on. We're not actually having to go anywhere. Dan? 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 I don't know about you, but when it comes to the weather, I am very much Goldilocks. No, I don't mean I like to break in their houses, eat someone else's food and sleep in their bed. What I mean is I don't like anything when it is too hot or when it is too cold. Drinks, food, showers and weather. Particularly the weather. Spring and early autumn, perfect. You know, that sunshine that's warming and pleasant, not searing, not scorching, not constant, not 50 degrees, not multiple days of running in the heat, and did I mention in the desert? It's in Morocco, um, so you basically fly into Ouazarat. Uh, which is southwest Morocco. I had no idea where the place was or had heard from it until I kind of got my um, atlas out, to be honest. This is Anna-Marie Watson. You'll recognise her voice if you've listened to previous episodes of the Running Stories podcast. However, on this occasion, she was going to have a tough job selling this trip to me. And then you get on a bus and you're on this bus for what just seems like absolutely hours and hours and you basically mm -hmm. head into the middle of nowhere right okay 
it, it doesn't sound immediately appealing. <laughs> the race is the famous Marathon de Sable, the race that revels in its label as the toughest foot race on earth. Over the last year on The Running Stories, this event has been mentioned a few times, and I've gotten the impression that it's the Glastonbury of ultras. Yeah, there are other festivals and new ones popping up all over the place all the time, but you've not really done it properly until you've done this one and joined the club. You kind of asked about the MDS and people, I know for me, the way I interpreted it, they'd almost get this kind of like little mystical kind of like far away um oh yes I did it oh it was amazing it was really special it was something different kind of beyond the normal you know let's just go and do a marathon and you know there are a lot more races ultra races and multi-day races around now than there were you know 15 years ago so you know the variety to choose from travel wise is a lot more but the MDS you know it started back in 1986 and it's almost kind of it's like the grandfather of the I am very aware that for some of you, this is an event you're familiar with. Maybe even one you've put down on your to-do list, right after complete the triathlon and fix the guttering. However, my suspicion is that there are also a number of you who might not have heard of it, or, like me, be thinking, what is this madness? If so, here's Anne-Marie explaining why she abandoned all reason to take on this event. It just... I know for me back in 2000, it just sounded like the, I don't know, the toughest race out there. And, but, you know, that was what, 15 years ago that I, I hadn't even done a marathon at that point. So for me that it was beyond. And even then, you know, like actually doing an ultra marathon these days is more kind of it, it, the, what there's articles around are ultras, the new marathons. So in 2000, doing a marathon for me was like a, oh, maybe one day I'll do a marathon. And, you know, I didn't do my first marathon until 2004. So doing this was like, it was just so big. It was kind of this fantasy that, you know, I kind of had this pipe dream that maybe one day I'd do it. But it, but it, but it, but it's almost, this wasn't like a straight away. It kind of, it was accumulation of 15 years. And, you know, I look back at the beginning of 2000s and you know I was in the military I traveled a lot I was on operational tour a lot when I was on operational tour I spent a lot of time in the officer's mess drinking um I kind of dabbled at exercise and you know went and did the odd cross-country race but actually over the last 15 years I've changed my lifestyle considerably my nutrition has changed my sleep has changed the way I manage my life and my work and moving up from the half marathon to the marathon to, you know, the shorter ultras to a multi-day, it has been a very incremental process. Now, this sounds logical, building up incrementally. But how do you build up to running in the desert and with that heat? For Anna-Marie, living in the region had its benefits in this respect, but also some barriers, literally. Yeah. And, you know, with MDS, it was, you know, I was living in Saudi Arabia, life as a female there, you've got cultural restrictions, societal restrictions. Um, you know, I was working in one of the schools out there and working with, um, in partnership with a local female Saudi leader um, on a coaching basis. 
Um, but, you know, we lived on a compound. Um, that compound had a perimeter fence of 1.2 kilometers. So my training was very much, you know, what can I do within a 1.2 kilometer perimeter fence? So I literally, I'd sometimes have training sessions for three hours and I would run round and round and round and round the compound um, with my little backpack on because getting the weight um, and getting my body used to carrying the weight was really important. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a midget. I mean, you know, five foot nothing and I don't weigh that much. So for me, carrying the weight was a massive um, challenge because proportionally even ratio of you know what I had to carry to my body weight it was a lot more than like what some of the bigger guys carried. The weight of the backpack wasn't just a physical challenge this is where those of you us who might maybe definitely have a tendency to want to pack those just in case items might start rethinking our suitability for this event. I couldn't help but think that Anna Marie's military background definitely came in handy with the packing. So I kind of developed a bit of a obsessional relationship with the scales and everything got weighed um, and cut down. And you do hear that people get their toothbrushes and they snap off the handle. Yes, that was me. Um, I did a very in-depth study into the, the highest calorific um, nutritional value of nuts and what mix of nuts to have um, and getting everything as small and light as possible. And even when I finished, it was still you know, seven and a half kilos when I was carrying the water, which is well above 10% of my body weight, um, which means actually carrying the weight is more of a challenge for me. Um, so, you know, ultimately for me in that preparation phase, it was how can I get to the starting point as fit um, and as well as possible and all my kit is completely squared away. And that is one of the things that a lot of people trip up on is they take kind of this excess kit just in case, oh, this is a bit of a luxury, um and yeah don't get me wrong I had my one luxury which was my little monkey um power charger for my phone um and for my Garmin because I really wanted to record the route and I wanted to take a few photographs and I said to myself actually I'm going to make sure that I take five I think it was five photographs every day just to document the um trip because sometimes when I'm running, I do get a little bit kind of head down and focused and running. And actually for this, it was such an adventure and I'd look forward to it for so much. I wanted to have some kind of visual images and um, not just in my memory that I could kind of look at. But there was still time to get some running practice in, right? I mean, the running side, don't get me wrong, for the running side of things, I very much, you know, I worked with a coach and I had my program in place. Um, but it wasn't as if I just kind of went out and ran um I still do a cross training you know I still cycle I still swim I still do yoga and it's getting that cross training that ultimately improves my strength my endurance and reduces my chance of injury and particularly building up the weight um, and doing these kind of longer weighted runs that was you know absolutely key um but just making sure that my rucksack fitted properly as well um <laughs> there was one I think there was one guy who literally his rucksack broke or something and someone like was literally um my race kits Elizabeth Barnes literally was delivering a rucksack on the start of the race so you kind of like, okay so you might be using a new rucksack that you've not raced in before okay how's that going to go for you so it is it's it's that preparation be it the training be it kit be it nutrition and um, be it your mindset all of that helps everything kind of fall into place some bits of running kit 
are more easily replaceable than others? One of my main concerns going into it, um, and it's what you always kind of hear about, is the feet. And this is what I'd seen when I passed through Gatwick Airport, were these mashed up, bloodied, blistered feet. So, you know, I spent a lot of time experimenting with different shoes, different socks, just so I could look after my feet as best as possible. Because ultimately, if you get blisters, it, it can be completely de- um, it, it, well, it can completely throw you running um, and it can be really, really painful. Um, so, yeah, I, I experimented with different types, different socks. And, you know, I got a couple of blisters, but nothing that was unmanageable. Um, but literally, there would be queues to the med center or the med tent every night. And people were basically lining up to get their blisters kind of popped and covered in iodine and strapped up as much as possible. Um, and you know, I very much, I kind of had a couple of little ones. I kind of sorted them out myself, to be honest. And I do tend to use zinc oxide on my tape to tape my hotspots, but you know, everybody will have a system that works for them. And it's just a matter of trialing and testing it. That sounds disgusting. So aside from your feet falling apart, was there anything that presented a risk? Um, another thing that I was a bit concerned about was, um, the food nutritionally you had to have 2000 calories every day and you had to package that so it was labeled so you could prove that when you had your kit checked but I knew that my body would be using a lot more than 2000 calories a day um so it was a bit of a juggle okay so do I carry more than 2000 clearly going to be carrying more weight um or do I just know that I'm going to be going into kind of quite a nutritional deficit and just leave it at that. And your decision was? I went super lightweight. <laughs> and I was just been looking at photos. Um, and, you know, literally I was losing weight by the day. In terms of eating, I think my natural daily intake would match that of a hobbit. Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about the Levensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea. Dinner? Supper? He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on him. Unfortunately, I believe second breakfast was a non-starter with this event. Although it sounds horrific, the rules about carrying a minimum of calories mean that no one is in medical danger and there is medical support throughout, including checking that you're drinking a sufficient amount of water. For Anna-Marie, having lived and trained in the region before, the heat wasn't quite so much of an issue. But I did ask how someone training in deepest, darkest Britain might adequately prepare. Using things like heat chambers, people do do, do that these days. And I, I kind of find that Bikram yoga is an absolutely amazing for the heat, but also for your core strength as well um, and your flexibility. So that's definitely kind of a top tip pre-MDS um, advice going on there. <laughs> For anyone that has moved house more than just once, you might identify with the process of getting distracted by the administration and planning. You focus on booking removal vans or organising friends, buying in a bubble wrap and attempting a colour coding system. And somehow you forget that there will be a day when you actually have to move. 
In amongst all the talk of Bikram yoga, toothbrushes and calorie counting, it seemed easy to forget what this was all leading to. Running. Lots of it. It's the equivalent of six marathons in six days. So you're looking at, you know, 250 kilometres, give or take. And remembering where you'd be running. The desert is... You kind of get these images of, I know, sand dunes, but actually the route itself, there was, it was only about 20% on sand dunes. But, you know, the desert it is, you, know, you, you hear about people kind of getting desert fever and getting pulled back and back and back to it. There are over a thousand runners at this event and you sleep in the desert. In tents. Sort of. Tent is a generous term for the sea of Berber tents or bivvies that make up the bivouac village. You have the same tent to stay in each night, which is located in the same place within the circular village, so you can find it more easily. What will also be familiar is the people in your tent and your neighbours, who will remain the same throughout the event. So it is a bit like Glastonbury after all, right down to worrying about the noise and the weather. Yeah, there, there was a little bit of snoring going on. Though I have to say with the wind at times, like literally during the night, the tents would just blow down. And there was one night where it just had blown down so many times that we just like, let's just leave it. And we, like, we woke up the next morning literally with like the tent blankets on top of our sleeping bags. Wait a minute. I know something else about camping. You normally have to fish out a variety of creepy crawlies and critters. Were there desert-specific critters to be aware of. Um, I really don't like that pause. There is, though I have to admit I didn't see anything. I'd be equally as worried about hearing them and feeling them. I think the noise that like 1,300 people make is probably enough to put off any self-respecting insect or animal. They're probably absolutely long gone. Um, though on the kit list, you do have to um, carry a venom pump with you at all times. I knew it. Well, you never, a, ven a venom pump, you never know. There might be like the odd passing snake that you trip up on when you're running. It's, it's kind of one of those things that sometimes just being slightly ignorant is a little bit better. So it's like, okay, there may be snakes out there. We'll just leave it at that. I'm sure they're positive um, poisonous, but we'll just, we'll just be avoiding them. <laughs> This all sounds busy, noisy, again a distraction, or maybe that is comforting. Maybe you're listening thinking, this sounds quite like an adventure holiday. A bit of extreme backpacking, maybe with some like-minded souls. But surely running in the desert is something else. Yeah, so there'd be times when I was running um, and I'd be out on my own and literally the desert would just stretch as far as the eye could see and it's just it's a kind of a desolate beauty um you know sometimes you've got the sand dunes sometimes it's kind of really rugged and a bit rocky at the times will be you know yes they'll you'll go through kind of jebels and dried up riverbeds and salt plains it is a very different running experience from your usual and for me, running around the compound in Riyadh, um, or you know, pounding the pavements of of Britain. So 
I do try and make a mental effort to appreciate the surroundings. And I kind of learned this from my dad. Whenever we used to go walking, we used to kind of just stop every so often and do a 180. So you kind of turn around and just kind of soak in the scenery or else you can get a little bit fixated on that little square of gravel in front of your feet. Thinking about the sites, I didn't quite know how to raise this, but if there's one thing most people would say they knew about the desert, it's that it's, well, deserted. 360 degrees of sand with some sky on top. Was there actually much to see? I think I think that's a bit of a mindset thing as well, to be honest. Some people say, I've heard some people say, oh, God, it was so boring. There was just nothing to look at. And I'm kind of like, well... I don't know, I personally think that's maybe more an indication of what you're projecting. Um, you can kind of find beauty in the desolateness of it. And you know, it's particularly when the sun was setting on the long day and you're watching the changing colour of the sand. It is, it is very unique. The sun sets and it becomes a deeper red and the, the yellows all kind of change in the shadows as well. Particularly, I mean, I remember we were going through sand dunes at the time, and the, sh- the shape, the shape of the shadows on the sun sand dunes, as they got longer and shifted and changed, was it was amazing. The other element you'd associate with the desert would be sandstorms. Was breathing ever an issue? I mean, it was windy. There's, there's kind of looking the videos from the start of the long day. Everything was just getting absolutely battered. And all the tents had collapsed on the tent on the, in the camp by the time we got there on the end of the long day. And it was like, okay, I've just run over 90 kilometers and I haven't even got a tent to get into because it's collapsed. <laughs> what am I doing here? I just, I can't actually physically move. Um, but, you know, I had my cap with the kind of the, the, the visor at the back. Um, and you can even put your shoes with the gaiters on, which... I know I found it's a different sensation to running with your gaiters on. It's just like a little, it just feels a little bit different. But if you've been training with them, then you, you kind of get used to it. Um, and the, I mean, the heat during the day as well, it was particularly when you sometimes would go up and um, maybe like a, I mean, like a narrow valley. And that was when the sun would be really quite fierce and concentrated beating down on it. Um but it is, it's just a, right, okay, just just keep going one front of, in, wait, one foot in front of the other. Um, I remember going up this valley and there was these two guys behind me who were both singing and just having that little bit of morale um, kind of feeding off their enthusiasm for being there. Um, that kind of gives you like that little push. Um, so you're kind of like, you know, supporting yourself, you're supporting others, you're having chats with other people. I can imagine that in those moments of isolation, in the heat, there might be moments when doubt set in, particularly if you'd heard of and seen people suffer on the course. My friend um, Leslie, who I was sharing a tent with, and you know I know her from Dubai. We basically trained, you know, long distance separate, but we were both going to be doing the event, and we were sharing a tent. She'd done it before, um, and wanted to do it again, um, and get it ultimately kind of do better um and literally on day 
think it was day two she fell over and hurt her knee like literally it exploded massively couldn't couldn't walk um and she ended up dropping out which you know when you're part of a tent community and one of your tent members hurts themselves and leaves it is it's sad because you know you you invested so much and you're part of a team together and you kind of want to get through it so you know her leaving it it did kind of it brought our spirits down and we were really sorry to see her go so you do hear there are people who drop out i think there was one guy who literally i think he broke his foot and he you know got a stick from somewhere and finished with a broken foot which you know hats off to him that's that's pretty impressive back in 1994 there was an italian chap called maro um and he basically got completely lost like completely lost um and he was alone in the desert for nine days um and he ended up eating i know like insects and cacti and was basically found in algeria nearly 300 kilometers off course um so that's you know that's a little bit of a a scaremongering story if you want to hear one and you you can always find people who've injured themselves or something's happened to them but i don't know i if that's what you're going to focus on then it's not it's not really adding anything to the experience kind of you know if you're going to go there and think about oh well i could get you know bitten by a snake i could get I don't know, there might be insects or something. There's lots of sand. It's quite uncomfortable. It's really windy. It's very hot. I could get dehydrated. I could get food poisoning. I might twist my ankles. I'm going to get loads of blisters. It's clear that doubt was something that just wasn't welcoming Anna Marie's thoughts. Instead of doubt, she heard... Get up, eat, run, eat, recover. And do it all again the day after. And that the idea of stopping was not entertained. I wasn't going to stop. There's no way I was going to stop. (laughs) um and it it is it's having that is an element of discipline there's an element of focus there's a element of stubbornness and sheer bloody mindedness that i'm just gonna keep going and i remember getting there was a blister on my little toe and i was just like i remember getting it i could feel it coming i was like i'm gonna have to stop at the next checkpoint and i was getting i was more cross that i was gonna have to stop at the checkpoint to look at my toe which is gonna take time than to kind of keep going so I remember literally and stopping and I literally I think I had a conversation with my little toe I was just like oh, come on what are you doing stop being so pathetic why have you got a blister there and I got my zinc oxide off and I just wrapped it up put my sock back on and like right I'm going and, and off I went so I think th- you know if I'd stopped and taken my time and put my feet up and oh woe is me I've got a blister you know that just you kind of you, you dwell on it more and then it becomes bigger in your mind so for me, it was just a matter of dealing with it and then cracking on. Which is how you go from a dream, a fantasy, to accomplishing something you can barely believe. So doing this was like, it was just so big. It was kind of this fantasy that, you know, I kind of had this pipe dream that maybe one day I'd do it. But, you know, to be sat here now, having done it a couple of years, well, like last year, and to have done so many other amazing races and to now there's so many more out there, it just kind of it shifts your horizon. It shifts your barriers. It's, you know, it's challenging yourself. And it's amazing what you can achieve. You know, ultimately, I was second lady and in the top 50, which I still can't quite believe it, to be honest. 
but that has given me so much confidence to do other races but also across other areas of my life as well and just within my business within meeting people and my MDS it's still it's still something really special and the people I met along the way and shared that with that gives it a deeper meaning Anna-Marie Watson runs Reach for More Coaching and alongside qualifications in coaching and teaching also focuses on nutrition and neuro-linguistic practices. You can find out more at rfmcoaching.com. We've spoken to runners of all different levels of experience over the last year, from people starting running for health reasons to those taking on challenges to raise money for charity and to those pushing themselves to the limit all over the world. This next story features someone who's done all that. Hi, I'm Lucia Leonard. Uh, I'm an ultra runner. I've been running ultras since 2013, after taking up running about eight years ago to lose a lot of weight. I found that the bug bit me, and I've done some fantastic challenges over the years, um, including multi-day races like Marathon de Saab, and Kalahari or Harvey's Extreme Marathon and just done some really crazy races like up in the mountains um, for excessive amounts of times and also ran the length of the Netherlands with my friend Marina, 500 kilometres in five days, wearing only our pink underwear, raising money for breast cancer. With all that Lucia has accomplished, we could have picked any one of her achievements to focus on for a story. But recently, I've been getting more and more interested in ultras and the different type of running challenges that are out there. Some of this started when I spoke to Nick Kershaw, CEO of Impact Marathons, who organises marathons around the world, but also involved the runners volunteering for a community project in that area. You can hear the interview on the episode Run For Your Money. Having completed my first ultra this year, like many other runners, I'm starting to look for a new challenge and something to aim for. And I'm always curious when you know the time is right to step up from a marathon. And this came quite suddenly. Lucia. Well, that kind of happened. I was running my first marathon and the pace of had a 100 kilometer shirt on. And I remember chatting to him about it, um, just sort of thinking, what, people run further than a marathon? Does that even exist? <laughs> Here I was about to finish my first marathon in a world of pain. Um, and from that, I think he planted a bit of a seed. And I remember mentioning it to my husband and he then bought me a book for Christmas that was um, called The World's Toughest Endurance Challenges. And as a bit of a a joke, in inverted commas, we said, right, we'll open the book and whatever our finger lands on, we'll do it. And so we opened the book and it was the Kalahari or Krabi's Extreme Marathon, which is a a multi-stage race in the Kalahari Desert in South Africa. Um, It's 250K over six stages and fully self-sufficient. So we signed up and we did that one together. That was our our first multi-stage race. Um, And the lead up to that, of course, we thought, well, we better run a little ultra and did like a a 32-miler just to prepare ourselves for that. Um, But it was certainly a a big shock, (laughs) big shock to the system to go from a a little ultra to a a full week in the desert. There seems to have been ample opportunity to have backed out of this, maybe claimed it was a joke, not serious, but this is an important part of Lucia's personality. If she says she's going to do something, she's going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think... 
to do what we do, you have to be very stubborn. And I think, yeah, that goes to show it was kind of like a bit of a half-hearted joke to say, yeah, we'll do that. And then, yes, we will do that because we've said we're going to do that, so let's do it. Um, and, yeah, we're very much, um, you know, I like to stick to my gums on things. And if I come up with an idea, then I like to see it through as well. So whatever it takes, really. And the reward is? It's a bit like, not that I've ever done drugs, but I imagine this is what taking drugs is like, that it's, you get such a hit of adrenaline and excitement and these races, because they're so far removed from your, your normal day-to-day life. You know, I go to work in a suit and wear makeup and high heels and I love the fact of just getting down and dirty and, you know, being a total grub and <laughs> sleeping in a sleeping bag. And, you know, most of my friends, they're just like, oh, but Lucia doesn't camp, you know, but <laughs> get me in some of these races. And I've just got my whole other persona that just likes to, to run free and, that's the whole excitement of it. And as soon as I get back, you know, I'm not even on the flight home and I'm already thinking, oh, what can I do next? Because I want that next buzz. Um, I I mean, I use the running now to get my travel experiences. Um, So, you know, I like picking races that are in new locations and and being able to explore a part of a country that I haven't seen before. And a lot of these races do take you to parts of the country that you just can't access on a, a normal, you know, tourist trip and things like that. So it's a great way to experience something different. And the people that you meet, they're just they're just amazing. Everybody's got their own reasons for being there and, and different stories and all walks of life, but we're all there for the same purpose and that's to, to have fun, you know, get an experience and just walk away with that knowledge that you've done it. There was one of these trips that stood out in particular. One that seemed to contrast with a lot of the ultras I see. The Genghis Khan Ice Marathon is a rare challenge to race one of the most remote locations on Earth. Hosted in Material National Park during the Mongolian winter, the course navigates frozen rivers and ice-cold trails. This would be the first time it had been run. So the whole idea of the Genghis Khan Marathon was to be the first ever ice marathon in Mongolia and run along a frozen river at minus 40 um, with nothing much around you except some wolves and then some huskies to keep the wolves away. This sounds terrifying. So to me that sounded perfect. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't really like the cold. um, So there was a challenge there and then. Um, and yeah, Mongolia has always been a country that I've wanted to go to because it's so different and unique. Um, so what better way to do it than to go there and, and run a marathon in there? How did she even hear about it? Yes, so I first heard about it through David Scott, who runs a company called Sandbaggers, um, based in Glasgow. Um, and David's a bit of an intrepid adventurer from you know many many years he's been he's been doing great adventures and trekking across Mongolia and Namibia and you know all around the world um so he has now started organizing adventures um for people to come along on and the whole concept of that is he wants to get like-minded adventurers together and you know try something new because I know David quite well from being up here in Edinburgh um it was myself and Andrew Murray that he 
approached and you know we then approached some of our friends and and got a bit of a group together um so we didn't at the very beginning when I said yes I didn't really know anything apart from it was going to be really really cold and we were going to run on some frozen river um that was about all I knew (laughs) never been done before ice sub-zero temperatures untested and dangerous terrain well, it was the whole concept of, you know, how do you run in minus 40? That just required a lot to get my head around. Um, you know, I struggle here when it's, you know, minus five. I struggle from rain outs um, on my hands where the circulation's really poor. So, I, I, you know, I really struggle out in the cold. Um, so I was wondering how on earth that would even be possible, what sort of kit you would need and, you know, how do people live in those conditions? Because, yeah, we were going out there for a week um, to do the marathon, but just to, to see how people live and their way of life and, you know, all of that really excited me. So I thought, yep, I'm in, I'm in for that. I thought the main risks would have been frostbite um, and the wolves um, were the main risks that I was aware of. I knew we'd be in safe hands because, you know, David is a a very organised expedition leader. So I I never had any doubt that, you know, we'd be just thrown out into the wild and, (laughs) you know, just left to fend for ourselves. But, you know, it was going to take a bit of, you know, self sort of, yeah, preservation as well and, you know, keeping your, your wits about you and making sure you were keeping alert as well. Um, Even the day before the marathon, you know, it just goes to show how blasé we can be sometimes. It was like I saw a a mountain near where we were staying. Well, a mountain, it was probably the the height of Arthur's seat, so about 250 metres. I was like, oh, should we climb up that? So, you know, a group of about five of us just climbed up this little mountain on our own (laughs) in minus 40. And, yeah, it's just the type of things that you like to do, really. (laughs) Well, I spent um, some time talking to Andrew Murray. So he's a, a doctor, Dr. Andrew Murray, um, renowned ultra runner up here as well. And, and he's done um, a few marathons in Antarctica. So I just approached him for advice on, on what kit to wear and, you know, how to look after myself. And, yeah, he advised, you know, making sure every bit of your skin was covered. Um, that was the main thing because he said that's your biggest risk out there is, is frostbite. So make sure, you know, you've got a balaclava. Um, and then we just talked about the layering systems of clothing, um, you know, using Hottie's hand warmers um, to keep my hands warm because of my Raynards. Um, and, yeah, just spoke to him about um, all bits of advice, really. I mean, our outstanding joke out there was um, plans change <laughs> for the better because, <laughs> um, yeah, being in Mongolia, you know, it's very sort of limited communication and um, you know it's not like here where you you've got wi-fi every second of the day and communication is perfect Um, you know out there you take your phone out because it's minus 40 the battery just dies within a second so you know you kind of left to you know just figure things out but um, you know it was always well organized and yeah we had some great experiences doing husky sledding Um, you know we ate some goats that people had reared. We drank lots of Mongolian vodka. Um, and there were just so many fantastic experiences um, to have while we are out there as well. It wasn't just about the running, um, again, which is why I get attracted to these um, adventures because it's not just about the running. It's, it's the whole adventure that comes part of it. Runners have different styles. 
different routines and different kits. But one thing I've noticed that runners mainly have in common when it comes to the ultras and big challenges is attention to detail when preparing. For something like this, maybe it would be time to try something different. Well, I guess, yes. One thing I did do differently was approach the local ice rink um, at Christmas time um, and had a couple of runs around the ice rink, um, which I guess is rather different to normal training. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I just used normal road shoes and I had um, some spikes that I put on the outside that you just slip on over your shoes and the spikes are about a millimetre to two millimetres long and gave them a whirl on the ice rink, um, much to the amusement of the passerbys. <laughs> and especially the ice skaters once they joined on the rink a bit later on. Um, so I guess that was the only thing I did differently. Um, I mean, I was training in the winter here in the snow anyway, so I was getting used to cold conditions. Um, but really, yeah, to have the opportunity to run on ice, the only way to do that was actually on an ice rink. You're going to face different conditions, but sometimes running is still just running. Yeah, I guess there's an element of that that comes into it. Um, you know, definitely when I've been running in the Sahara, you've really got to listen to your body and make sure you're not overheating. So you're not running as quick as you would, say, you know, just on the roads around here. Um, but essentially, running's running. Um, and as long as you're prepared in terms of, you know, like in the cold, that you've got the right kit on, that you're not getting too cold and by the same token you're not overheating because as soon as you start running you start to heat up um, so you can overheat quite quickly as well and you're watching your your hydration and, and things like that as well then essentially running is running and you know if you take my husband's theory on it the, the quicker you run the sooner you get the bloody thing done <laughs> so it is something that you do need to take into account but I always think that those sorts of things I like to, to practice in my training, um, you know, like pushing yourself too hard, knowing that you're somewhere safe. You know, if I go and do a marathon locally, I can go and push myself really hard and know that if everything blows up at 20 miles, well, I'm in a safe environment and I can get help. Um, whereas I wouldn't do that on the Mongolian ice marathon because that's just stupid. Um, so I, I really listen to my body and I know how far I can push and what's dangerous for me and, you know, try and ignore what other people are doing as well because that's another danger is, you know, trying to keep up with other people or going too slow for other people as well, um, vice versa. So it is really important that you, you know your body very well, which is why I think, you know, you need to be taking those steps up before you go and do these extreme events as well so that you can listen to your body and know what it means and know when you're just being a bit weak and you're just going, oh, no, this is really hard, as opposed to, oh, no, something's wrong. Running is just running. However, even the basic part of that can change and challenge how we put one foot in front of the other. How we breathe. Um, luckily, we'd gone for a test run the day before and just sort of done a three-mile run to test out our kit. And I ended up having to cut a hole in my balaclava for my mouth um, because you were breathing through the material, making it wet, and then it was freezing up. So then you couldn't breathe. <laughs> so it was really important to cut a hole in your balaclava um, and just, yeah, the, the feeling of your lungs being really cold um, was an interesting experience. But in terms of the body, I was surprised at how warm I got. I started off with a jacket and within, you know, five minutes I was peeling that off. So it was, um, yeah, surprising how quickly your body warmed up. But then also 
how quickly it cooled down. As soon as you stopped, you know, you sort of stood outside having a chat and then within a minute you're kind of like, oh, God, okay, I need to go put some warm, dry clothes on. Because <laughs> so, you still sweat a lot, even though it's cold. And the sights and sounds. I always make a conscious effort to, to look up and, and look around because, yeah, these locations are so unique and, and so different. You do need to pull yourself out of out of that moment and make sure you are soaking it up and and sometimes it doesn't really hit until a week or two after you've done the event that you know it all sort of comes together in your mind and you start remembering things um, and you really do appreciate it even more then what really stood out for me was how quiet it was um, you know the, the stillness out there is just amazing because it, it's so uninhabited that there's just nothing around, um, you know, there's very minimal cars and trucks, so most of the locals are on horseback, so you just don't hear any, there's no noise pollution at all, um, and the only noise that you could hear was actually the sound of the ice. Like cracking underneath you. <laughs> which I remember was like bouncing through the trees, um, like echoing. So at the beginning, it was really unsettling. And I remember I was running um, at the same pace as another guy called Paul, and we just kept looking at each other, sort of going, oh, you know, is this really safe? <laughs> But it was a really, once we sort of settled in and thought, yeah, okay, we're not going to go crashing through the ice. It was a really nice sound, uh, really magical. Uh, we could hear them, um, but we could hear that they were also not, you know, two metres away. So they were far enough away just to sort of add a really sort of, yeah, eerie atmosphere to it. But, yeah, really nice. Um, and another thing was I remember... Um, going to have a drink at halfway. Um, they had a van there with a couple of people and some water to drink. And I went to take a drink and I had to knock my fro frozen snot out of the way before I could drink, <laughs> which that was a, a different experience. <laughs> Running a race for the first time in a new location can test even the most experienced of runners. We'd all finished the race except for one. Um, Mo, <laughs> he had gone missing. Um, and nobody could find him. Everyone just, you know, split in different directions and, and started a, a search party. Um, there were a lot of girls in the area, um, which are like the, the little huts that they live in. So, you know, we were going around knocking on, on all of those and, and looking for Mo because, you know, everybody knows if you were out there then you'd go and find shelter so that's what we were looking for um little did we know that he'd actually found you know a lovely hotel with heating and, and tea and coffee <laughs> oh he said he he didn't he didn't accept the vodka he said he felt too guilty about drinking vodka but he did take a tea <laughs> it's a silly question to ask whether an experienced runner like lucia would want to do something like this again oh absolutely <laughs> you know it's certainly builds a bond between people as well and yeah everyone had 
similar experiences, but all different in their own way as well. So it was great to catch up afterwards and, you know, have a few more of those vodkas and, and talk about the experience um, throughout the night. So, yeah, it was definitely really good fun to chat with everybody and yeah, hear how everybody felt it and everybody experienced it in their own way. But I do like the sound of the, well, like the sound, I kind of, I'm scared to death of the sound of the Yukon Ultra as well. Um, one of my friends, Neil Thurbrin, who runs Extreme Energy Events, he did it this year um, and won it. Um, and yeah, I believe it's 300 miles or something through, you know, like waist deep snow and you pull your own sled with all your own kit and everything. Whoa, um, back, back. You pull a sled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, um, you pull a sled. So, yeah, that one sounds way, you know, very far-fetched, but so far-fetched that it's exciting. But it's not just about the challenge of the landscape, battling against the conditions or running from wolves. Every race and every run is an achievement from leaving the couch for the first time to joining others on a park run, finishing that first longer distance or signing up for a marathon. Those feelings don't diminish with repetition. For Lucia, the personal discovery is a continuing surprise. Gosh, I would never have known any of this stuff about myself um you know gosh 10 years ago just i think it really builds you as a person you know doing these these sort of challenges and it really shows how much you're truly capable of and, and how much you can actually take um you know before your body gives up and and does it actually ever give up um you know i've gotten I've reached breaking points and, and reached breaking points and seem to somehow overcome them. Um, so I'm just so surprised at the human body. And I think so many people don't don't give themselves credit and don't believe in themselves enough. Um, but I think something like this, I mean, my confidence is just absolutely through the roof. And I think in a good way, um, you know, I used to care a lot about what people thought of me and you know, took things to heart if people didn't like me or, you know, stresses at work and things like that. And now I just kind of think, oh, gosh, you know, you've run through the Sahara Desert, like, who cares? <laughs> you know, there's more important things in life. So it really does change you, I think. You sometimes do feel like you're invincible, but you do need to be careful that um, yeah, you're actually not invincible. So <laughs> you do need to draw some limits at some point. There's a camaraderie about this type of running. And for anyone who's thinking they want to try one, is maybe unsure that they can do it, or is worried about the risks, then the message is that you'll be a part of a supportive and very special club. The club's so welcoming, and, and that's the thing. Like I love nothing better than sharing time with people as well and you know my husband's always getting up me for it as well but taking other people out on runs and like sacrificing your own training but to develop somebody else um, to be able to do these things as well because there's so many people out there especially women that don't seem to have the confidence to go out and you know like I'll think nothing of just jumping in a car and then going for a drive and running up a mountain somewhere but there's so many people that are scared to do that and so it's nice to be able to to help people and in all these races if anybody's struggling you know people are there to pick you up they'll sacrifice their own race to make sure you're okay um my husband recently ran the gobi march with four deserts um that was in june in china and he could have actually well he would have won the race but the race leader suffered from dehydration and he sacrificed his own race and carried you know tommy chen's bag for 
for four miles, found him some shade to sit in, gave him all of his water and then ran for help for another four miles, um, which meant he lost about three hours out of his race. And, you know, that's my husband is like super competitive. You know, if you saw him from the outside, you'd be like, no, no way he would not do something like that. But absolutely, when you're in a situation like that, that's the, the main thing you, that you do is help other people. Thank you so much to Lucia and to Anna-Marie for sharing their stories. You can find out more about their running with the links in the description for this episode at morefuzzylogic.com forward slash running stories. We started this podcast back in January following some great stories that I'd been sharing via the Running Stories website. We immediately had a lot of interest, and our stories and interviews included comedians Paul Tonkinson and Rob Deering telling us about their podcast, BBC Sports broadcaster Vassos Alexander talking about his book and stopping mid-run for a coffee and pastry whilst marathon training with Chris Evans, and a whole range of inspiring stories from runners overcoming blindness, people finding mental health and peace through running, or runners raising millions for charity. We've heard from children getting into the sport, and Brian Ashwell, who's still running and breaking records in his 80s. We've loved hearing and sharing your stories, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to them throughout the year. But every race comes to an end, and this is the finishing line for the Running Stories Radio podcast. Remarkably, the podcast has been played in more than 200 countries, and our episodes have been listened to over 12,000 times. However, with no donations and no sponsorship, it has become increasingly hard to dedicate the time and resources to continue producing the show and making the best work we can. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so generously with their time and their stories, particularly to Anna-Marie Watson for her regular feature and all-round enthusiasm, and to Gemma Hockett and Max Hartman for their feature early in the year. We thought it appropriate to end on a bumper playlist with which to bid you farewell. Enjoy.
hair tied round their throats to keep their little heads from falling in the snow. And I turn round, and there you go. And Michael, you would fall and turn the white snow red as strawberries in
takes a back seat as the cigarette catches. Sunshine, bring me love. 
the sunshine in your smile. Bring me laughter all the while. In this world where we live, there should be more happiness. So much joy you can give to each brand new bright tomorrow. Make me happy through the years. Never bring me any tears Let your arms be as warm as the sun from up above Bring me fun, bring me sunshine, bring me love, sweet love Bring me fun, bring me sunshine, bring me love 